thank you guys for allowing me to join you this morning. Uh, it's been a, an amazing worship experience. I love seeing the kids worship. Uh, so encouraging. If you'll turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, we'll be in the book of Acts. Let me just first say, um, I can't thank Forth enough for letting us have Pastor Jamal as our lead pastor. Um, he has been such a blessing for our church. Um, and I know that uh, that was a painful process for you guys. I'm, I'm really thankful for Pastor Nate. I'm, I, he is a wonderful pastor. Uh, but, but we are thankful for Jamal, and he is leading us in tremendous ways. Um, in one specific way is, you know, we got Jamal during a lot of racial tension in our city. And we've been able to speak to that in powerful ways. Um, and it's just been an, an amazing healing process for our community in Shelby Park. Uh, my wife and I live in Shelby Park. And it's just been a real blessing to have him. Let's start with a word of prayer, just asking that God would pour out his blessings on us this morning. Precious Jesus, Father, I pray that you meet us in this moment. That as we open the word of God, Lord, that it not be about what I have to say or what I've prepared, but it be about the Holy Spirit speaking through me. Father, that we can understand the lives of Peter and John and those who walk during these days. Father, but we may know how to walk during our days. Lord, allow us to know how to honor you, to love you with our words, with our actions, with how we live our lives. May the word of God be deeply rooted and blossom in our hearts today. Father, I pray that you work in us and through us, and may you be known. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as Pastor Nate talked about, um, I'm pastor at Sojourn Community Church, and the thing I do at Sojourn, kind of my little niche of ministry, is I help people move overseas to take the gospel. Um, we do training, we do um, care, we do all those kinds of things. So one of the benefits of my job is I get to travel all over the world. Um, sometimes that's really good. I have crazy stories where that's not good. Um, but one, one of the blessings is sometimes I get to come upon a place that I've, I've never known about. Um, but that is life-changing. One of those places is called Bun Hill Fields. Bun Hill Fields is a little cemetery in the middle of London, England. I was there with some pastors, and we were meeting with church planters in England. And we were going to dinner, and as we were walking to dinner, we came to this little graveyard. People were walking through it back and forth. I think there's a, a picture behind me. And as we sat down, we were kind of waiting to go to dinner. I walked around the graveyard. I like to walk around old graveyards. I know that's kind of creepy. Um, but to just to read all of the headstones and the history and, and the mark that people left on this life. And as I walked around the graveyard, I realized where I was. That I was standing in the final resting place of some of my Christian heroes. Men like John Owen. He was a Christian author, a theologian, and a man who greatly impacted the church. The things that we do and we know and and how we engage as a church, many thing, of those things were impacted by John Owen. A woman, Susanna Wesley, the mother of nine kids, one of those being John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Isaac Watts, he wrote over 600 hymns. Many of those hymns we sing as the church today. But right in the center of this graveyard was a man named John Bunyan. I think you'll, that's his grave right there. A lot of the graves are mossed over, and you can barely read the names, but John Owens, you can. And as I was standing in this, in this, this place, later I realized that this was called a, a graveyard for Protestant dissenters. What that means is, these were men and women, godly men and women, in England who stood up for the truths of the gospel, and they suffered a lifetime of persecution. So their death was so despicable in that day that they were not even allowed to be, to be buried in a normal graveyard. They had to be buried in a, in a reject graveyard. But in the middle is John Bunyan. John Bunyan is, is well known for writing a book called Pilgrim's Progress. This, uh, um, apart from the Bible, it's the most widely published book in the whole world. And it's impacted so many people. But what a lot of people know, don't know is that John Bunyan suffered greatly for his faith because he could not be silent when it came to sharing the gospel. He couldn't stop sharing Jesus. Bunyan was a British pastor. He was a British Baptist pastor who was in prison for three months for refusing to give up preaching. 
During that day, you could only preach if you were licensed to preach. And only the government could license you. Well, he preached anyway. So the people came, and they arrested him, and they put him in prison for three months. And they told him, all you have to do is stop preaching. And he refused. He spent 12 years in prison. His wife, who was pregnant at the time, had to raise their four kids for those 12 years all by herself, her and the church, including their blind daughter. There's a story that's told that that John Bunyan could look out his window in his prison cell and he could see his blind daughter on the street selling flowers, trying to make enough money to feed the family. All because he loved Jesus and preached the gospel. After this 12-year period, the laws of England changed and he was released. Guess what the first thing he did when he was released? He went to preach the gospel. He preached the gospel. And when he died, he was buried with these other outcasts in this cemetery. And I had the chance to stand in the middle and to remember the legacy they have left us. So my desire this morning is we're going to jump into Acts 4, and I want to show us that God continues to give his church, people like you and me, the courage to share Jesus even when the world stands against us. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest. Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that, we may, that it may spread no further among the people, Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we can't but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man who whom this sign, this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So before we jump into this passage, which is rich with, with gospel truth, it's important to understand the context, to understand what's happening in Acts chapter 3. So in Acts chapter 3, the church, uh, it's Acts chapter 2, the church begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, this church is learning how to be the church. What does it mean to be the family of God? And Peter and John, some of the apostles, the leaders of the church, they go to the temple where the church is meeting. The church is meeting out in the open in Solomon's portico. So they're walking into the temple, into this gate called Beautiful, and there's a beggar there. A beggar who, who comes every day, who's been there all his life. And as they're walking by, the beggar gets Peter's attention. Peter looks at the beggar. And the beggar asked for money. He asked for alms. 
And Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Stand up and walk in the name of Jesus. And the, the passage says that Jesus stands, or that the, the crippled man leaps to his feet, literally jumps to his feet, and his ankles and his feet are healed. And he rejoices and he praises God for the miracle that's been done. And then he, they grab Peter, he grabs Peter and John, and they go into the temple. And you can imagine hundreds, if not thousands of people, Jews there worshiping the Lord, and they see this man who they know is a cripple. They've passed him every day for 40 years, and they begin to wonder in amazement and, and at the healing that is taking place. And Peter realizes what's happening. This, cro- this crowd is being drawn, and he thinks this is the perfect time to preach the gospel. And he, he, he opens his mouth, and he begins preaching about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And that's where we pick up in Acts 4, is that the religious leaders, the high priest, who's over all that, part of the Sanhedrin, he's a Sadducee, um, as Jamal says at uh, Sojourn, he says Sadducee, because they're very sad, they don't believe in the resurrection, and Peter is preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, so they have to stop it, that's what they feel like, so this opposition begins, this is the first time in the book of Acts where we see the church persecuted. And this persecution will continue to to grow. But our God is a God who is committed to making his love known in the middle of hostility. He shows his love to the lame beggar, to the outcast, who for 40 years people have just disregarded, to the masses at at the temple, so to all the people who are worshiping the Lord. And he makes his love known even to those who oppose him, to the religious leaders. The gospel is for all people. It's in the midst of all this that God was growing his church. Remember, Acts 2, the church begins. The Holy Spirit falls. 3,000 people believe. And we see here that in verse 4, look, Acts 4, 4, that many of those who heard the word that, that Peter was preaching believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the scriptures say that the number of men came to about 5,000. It doesn't talk about women or believing children. So we could imagine there, there could be 10,000 people who believe the gospel now. So 3,000... 10,000, through the power of the gospel, we see the early church take root and begin to grow in massive ways. There's no explanation for this growth apart from the grace of God. So let me give you uh, some numbers. At the resurrection, we know there are about 120 followers of Jesus. About 120 followers. At Pentecost, just a few weeks later, the gospel's preached and 3,000 people believe. 3,000. And they're, they're not just... Jews in Israel, but they're Jews from all over the known world. All over the known world. In Acts 4, the passage we're reading, we know that 5,000 men plus women and children believed. And then by the year 300, there was an estimated 6 million Christians. So how in less than 300 years, when there's no telephone, there's no internet, there's no social media, there's no planes, there's nothing like that, how could the gospel go from 120 to six million. And there's no explanation. There is no explanation apart from the grace and power of God. We can't explain it. God grew his church through his power and grace. It's as simple as that. But I don't want us to read this text and and see the book of Acts as a history book. Because the the Bible is alive. And what the God that, that wrote the book of Acts is still doing this today. Now, What I'm supposed to do as the guest preacher in international missions is tell you how lost the world is. And that's true. There are uh, 7 billion people in the world and over 2 billion of them have no access to the gospel. I'm not saying that 2 2 billion people don't believe in Jesus. I say they have no access to the gospel. What that means is even if they wanted to know who Jesus was, they don't know a Christian. There's not a Christian in their community. Or if they wanted to go buy a Bible, they couldn't. There's no Bible in their language. Or they have no access to the Bible. There are two billion people like that, even more, who don't call on Jesus as Savior. But what we can celebrate is that there are more than 500 million evangelical Christians around the world. 500 million. Much of the growth of the church in the last 80 years has been in the places that were once mission fields. Places like Brazil, the Philippines, South Korea, India, and many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. They were once receiving missionaries, 
Now they're sending missionaries. Uh, my wife and I were in, in Nashville a few years ago, and I was at a conference, and I met this man from, uh, I think he was from Gambia in Africa, and um, he had been there for two weeks, and I asked him, what are you doing? Are you visiting friends? He's like, oh, I'm on a mission trip. And I'm like, oh, so you're like on a short-term mission trip. He's like, no. It's like, I left my, all that I know in Africa, and I've come to Nashville to plant a church. And I, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. That's how God works, right? But it was just like, oh, right. People come to America as missionaries too. So what we understand of missions is changing. That the places that were once mission fields are now sending missionaries. We can look at the church in China. In 1946, when communism came in and took over China, there were an estimated one million evangelical Christians. One million. Now that was a huge praise. There were many people. There are tons of biographies written about men and women who gave their lives to see the gospel penetrate China. So they celebrated those one million. But when, they, when all the missionaries were kicked out, many of the missionaries and national Christians were slaughtered, and the, the ones who did survive left, what they really thought was this fledgling Chinese church would buckle, would crumble under persecution. And what did happen is persecution did come, and it's still going on in China. Lots of people suffering for their faith. But when China did open back up to some degree in 1970, and missionaries began to go in, they were amazed at what they found. Not only had the church not crumbled under persecution, the church had grown. Those one million believers had multiplied themselves to the point that where today there's an estimated 100 million Christians. How is that possible? How can the church grow under persecution? Well, we see it in Acts. As this oppression begins in chapter 4 and then it continues in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, and that persecution, the persecution of the world against the church continues, but the church grows. In fact, when we're talking about China, it is estimated that in China there are more born-again Christians than there are in America and Europe combined. Um, by 2035, they'll, they say that numerically China will be the most Christian nation in the world. It's just amazing what God's doing. In the early chapters of Acts, God was putting his power and glory on display to a watching world, and he's doing the same thing today. God's gospel is being made known. His, his gospel is being made known. It's clear that one, one of the main takeaways of this passage is that we should be sharing Christ. We see Peter and John doing it. We can walk through all the New Testament. And one of the underlying things of the New Testament is men and women who lived on mission. But before we can talk about what does it mean to share our faith, we have to know what we're sharing. I think too often we jump to like action and we don't soak in what the gospel is. So this morning, let us, let us soak in what the gospel is. Look in chapter 4, verse 10. In verse 10, Peter defines the gospel as Christ crucified and raised from the dead. The gospel or the good news is that Jesus died on our behalf. He didn't just die, God rose him from the dead. Peter goes on to say that Christ was rejected by the religious establishment, but has become the cornerstone of a new faith. That he is our chief cornerstone. That the church itself was built from that cornerstone. Peter was on a roll here preaching the gospel. He had preached the gospel with boldness in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 3, and now he's doing it in Acts chapter 4. And that picture we have in Acts chapter 3, where he's at the temple, and by God's grace he's just healed a man, and a crowd is gathering, that's kind of how Peter lives. He's like, okay, wait, there's a lot of people. What's happening? He's like, this is the perfect time to preach the gospel. And that's how he lived his life. He's looking for moments and opportunities to share Jesus. Let's look back in Acts chapter 2. Um, and we're going to look at this Pentecost sermon. I'm going to read verse 22 through 24, and then I'm going to skip to 36. 22. This is Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God do through, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death 
because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's look in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord has called to himself. So Peter is preaching. Again, Peter stands up, and he's not looking at people who look just like him. He's looking at people who are different skin colors, all kinds of languages, because this is being translated through tongues, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus. But I want to look back in verse 24. Verse 23 and 24. Peter says, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So that's the gospel. The death couldn't hold Jesus. It couldn't hold God himself, the perfect man, the perfect God. He could not hold Jesus. That is the gospel. Anytime Peter spoke about Jesus, he spoke about Jesus' crucifixion and the fact that he was raised to life. That, my friends, is the gospel. And as we think about what does it mean for people to know Jesus, what does it mean for us to live on mission, it means for us to, to tell people about a, a Christ, a God, a Jesus, our Savior who was crucified, who rose from the dead, and who is alive today. That's what that means. Now let's look back at Acts 4. God was making himself known through Peter here to the religious leaders, but also as we think back to Acts 3, Peter made God known, God was making himself known through Peter to the cripple, to the lame man, to the masses, and to the religious leaders. One of the patterns we see in Scripture is of God making himself known to those at the margins of society. The outcast, the poor, before he makes himself known to others. We see the same pattern throughout much of the world today. Jesus identifies himself with the outcasts of society because he himself was an outcast. Let me ask you a question. What does it look like for you to engage with those on the margins of society? Who are the outcasts around you? Think about your life. The poor, the disabled, the refugee, the orphan, the social outcast, the addict, the abused, the abuser. What would it look like for you to embrace those outcasts in your life? Now, I'm not saying that's easy. And I think for some of us, we can't get away from it because they're in our own family. I know for me, the hardest people to love are the people in my own family. Many of the people in my family are broken, unrepentant outcasts. And as a, as a believer, I know I'm called to love them, but what I want to do is to judge them. I want to run away. I want to stay where it's comfortable. My grandfather was a drunk. My father married and divorced multiple women. He had at least 10 kids that we know of, and he abandoned everyone, his wives and his kids. My brother's a heroin addict and has destroyed my extended family. So let me ask you, how do I love the broken people in my life? No, seriously, how do I love the broken people? I have no idea. <laughs> but that's what I'm coming to grips with, is like I can't love the broken people in my life. But Jesus can. And just like Jesus used Peter and the power of the gospel, Jesus can use me and the power of the gospel to speak to my family. Only by the grace of God, looking to Jesus as a model and trusting him for strength in every moment. What we can't do on our own, Jesus can do in our weakness. I want you to hear that this morning. I know we're all, as we think about mission, um, I, I'm talking a lot about international mission, but mission starts in our home, and it starts across the street, and it starts in our workplace. And too often it's easy to meet a guy like Indy Lama, who's going to Nepal and say, oh, we're doing mission, um, and not look in our own heart and asking, or, am I doing mission? So I want to challenge you to do that. 
but know that if you're not capable, you're starting in a good place. That if you're too weak, then you're starting in a good place. Christ works through our weakness because he's strong. He's strongest when we are weak. Now, as, G- as Peter's preaching the gospel, he gives a section of gospel truth, but I want us to stop for a moment and look at verse 12. This is really important. Verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So here is what we could call the most divisive and hated passage in all of Scripture. Let me read it one more time. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's hated because this passage declares that Jesus is exclusive. Now, hear me. On a whole, people don't hate Jesus. People like Jesus. People outside of our faith think of him as a prophet, as a good man. And I I bet we can think of many of our friends and our loved ones who like the idea of Jesus. But what they don't like is the exclusive claims the Bible make about Jesus. Even what, what Jesus says about himself. When they hear us say that Jesus is the only way to God, that he is the only way to heaven, they're offended by our claims. The world mocks us. Um, when my wife and I were serving overseas in Nepal, one of the things I would do is I would go out into the village, um, and I went out with one of my national pastor friends. We went to his village, his home village. It was awesome. Um, and this small village, several hundred families, there was one known Christian family and no church. And uh, we got permission to show a movie about Jesus in the school. So they closed the school for the day, and, and my friend was showing a movie about Jesus. It was, it was a huge open door. But I got a chance to sit with the village elder, the, the leader of the village, and the principal of the school. And for 30, 45 minutes, I was just telling stories about Jesus. Just talking about this loving, caring man and how he pursued the outcasts and those who were poor, the people who were just like these Nepali people. And as I was telling stories, you could see these men visibly get excited. And they would even stop me and ask questions about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Tell me, they would ask questions about what he did and what he said. And then I came to the part in the story where Jesus made exclusive claims about himself. That Jesus said, he is the way to the Father. That if you, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. Something changed in the room when I shared that, that piece. Their mood shifted. No longer were they engaged and excited, but they were distant and a little hostile. They told me they loved the stories of Jesus and they loved Jesus the the man, but to say that Jesus was the only way was offensive to them. They they said they were happy to add Jesus to their other gods. Hindus believe in over 300 million gods. So to venerate, to lift up Jesus was no problem, but to cast aside their other gods is impossible. They were clearly telling me that they could adopt Jesus but to say he's exclusive was narrow-minded. Now, it would be easy for us here to stop and say, oh, these, you know, these heathen Hindu people who worship all these statues, they need to give up their gods. But we need to stop for a second. We in the West do the same thing. We like Jesus as long as he's convenient. We like him as long as we don't have to give up our, our gods, our pet gods, Money, sex, pride, ambition, success, you name it, you have a God in your life. You have a little idol that you worship. So to believe in and trust in and pursue Jesus as your only God is just as hard for you and it's just as hard for me and it's just as hard for our friends and our family as these Hindu men that I set before. But those are the claims that Jesus lays out. That's what Jesus calls us to, to pursue him only. Let me stop here, and I want to give us three quick definitions um, as we're talking about the exclusiveness of Jesus. I think this is important because this is what's happening in our world right now, are these three things. This is how um, people in the world think about religion. Number one is pluralism. This idea of pluralism says Jesus is not unique, 
and that all paths lead to God. Jesus is not unique and all paths lead to God. This is a hugely growing trend in America. Um, You hear people say this all the time. Oh, and it seems like tolerance toward the church, but it's really not. It's hostility toward the church. It's this growing tolerance like, hey, we should all be tolerant, but we won't be tolerant of you because you believe in Jesus exclusively. That's pluralism. Inclusivism says that Jesus is unique, but can and does save through other faiths. And this is people who say, oh, I have a, uh, a really moral friend, or I have a, uh, a Muslim friend who is really devout in their faith, and surely, surely Jesus will save them, because they try really hard, or they're a really good person. And I think this is a lie that, that is common to believe in the church, that they're an upright person, so um, God will have mercy on them. And then thirdly is ex- exclusivism. Exclusivism. Jesus is the only way to God and to eternal life. And the scriptures as a whole, the New Testament, compels us that we must believe in exclusivism. That Jesus is the only way. He's our only hope. If we're honest, this truth is hard for many of us to grasp. We'll just stop and think about it. There are so many people around us who have sincere faith in something. Maybe it's in their moral behavior. Maybe it's in Islam or Judaism or a countless number of other beliefs. And can God really send people like this to an eternal hell? And the answer is a terrifying yes. Yes. Yes, he he will. Let's be reminded of Jesus' own words in John 14, 6. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Guys, I know this is a hard truth to wrestle with. I think about my family who don't know Jesus. Um, Well, let me say that. They know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They have cultural Christianity. Um, They have the facts right, but they've not allowed Jesus to seep into their heart. They've not given their lives over to Jesus. And I weep for my family. I weep for my neighbors. I long for them to know Jesus because I know that the grace of God is extended through the Son of God. That's where the grace of God comes from. It comes through the cross and the resurrection. So for us to look at this and to get sick in our stomach, how could God not be merciful? God is merciful. He was merciful through His Son. That's where His mercy comes from. Jesus is indeed the only hope of the world. He is our only hope. And along with this truth is, truth is the promise that God provides courage for his children to share the gospel. He gives us the courage. God's people are given courage to proclaim the truth. We see this in the last part of the passage that we read. In Acts 4, we see the beginning of persecution for the church. It gradually intensifies in Acts Five, when Peter and John are beaten by the same group. So, if you'll remember Acts 4, they're in the temple, they're arrested, they go before the Sanhedrin, these are like the top leaders of the day. These are the same men who crucified Jesus. Just keep that in mind. And they see this healed man before them, and they realize, if we somehow harm Peter and John, the whole crowd's going to go against us. So they say, don't preach in the name of Jesus, and get out of here. Well, of course they preach again. And when they preach again in chapter 5, the same men, the same group, arrest them. But this time, let's look in Acts 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So, we know what happened in three. Miraculous healing. In four, they were warned that they shouldn't preach about Jesus. In five, they continue to preach with boldness. And they're beaten. And what's the response to being beaten? How do they respond? Joy. It says they leave the council being counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
And the response to that is they go back to the house of God. They come back to the church. And just like in four, the brothers and sisters, they, they prayed before the Lord. In five, they prayed before the Lord. And they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. So I gave you all those numbers earlier about how the church grew. The church grew through the boldness of Christians. Persecu- persecution couldn't stop the gospel. In fact, it increased the gospel. In chapter 7, if you'll remember, chapter 7 is this deacon. Um, chapter 6, Stephen was named one of the deacons, and he begins preaching, and the men pick up stones, and they stone him, and they stone him to death. So the first martyr of the church, and the last thing Peter sees is Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. So persecution increased, but the church increased as well. Today, the, the global church faces persecution in the same way the early church did. We may not feel it in the same way in America. I think if we are standing for our faith and if we are proclaiming our faith, we will feel opposition and we will feel hostility. But there are many people around the world who suffer for what they believe. Um, I have a chart right here for you to see. Every month around the world, 322 people are killed for their faith. Every month, 214 churches are destroyed, set afire, bombing. When, I was, when we were in Kathmandu, um, one of the larger churches, someone walked in and, and blew it up. And almost 800 incidences of violence, beatings, rape, torture. Not because, uh, not a political reason, but because these people are standing for Jesus. They're proclaiming Jesus. Even in the midst of opposition and persecution, Peter and John could not contain the gospel. The gospel had entered their heart and they couldn't keep it to themselves. So even if the result was suffering, they had to let it out. Their bold faith spilled out into bold preaching to the religious leaders who were opposing them. That's what's amazing. If you look in chapter 4, verse 19, The, the council, and you can imagine, like these are the men who crucified Jesus. These are the men that Peter and John actually ran away from during the crucifixion. And they arrest them, and they, they stand before the same men. And this is what Peter and John say to them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we can't but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they couldn't keep the gospel in. Too often, however, today, we look at the Great Commission as the great suggestion. Oh, we should do it. But it's a commission. It's a command. It's not a command that lords over us and provides guilt and shame. It's a command that brings joy. We, and I'm including myself here, we push the need to share the gospel down. We push the need to share what we most love, which is Jesus, and we lose out on the joy of sharing him with others. Listen, my intent is not to bring a guilt trip upon you guys. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I want to empower you to live out of the joy that comes when you open your lives and share Jesus with those around you. So the question I ask myself, what if evangelism doesn't come naturally to me? We look at Ephesians chapter 4 and we know that evangelism, being an evangelist, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So what if that's not my gifting? What if it's a struggle? Not all of us are Peters and Johns. They were an evangelist. Not all are natural evangelists, but all believers should and can share their faith with others. The same courage and boldness that Peter and John had is the same boldness we are given because we have the same Holy Spirit. Let's look in Acts 4, 8 through 20 again. The last piece of, of verse 20. We can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel, is we testify to what Christ has done in us and around us. You don't have to be the most articulate person. You don't need to know the Bible through and through. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture is John chapter 4. Jesus meets the woman at the well. Um, The woman at the well comes to faith when she comes confronted with her sins. And it says she leaves her water pot and she goes back to the village. Remember, she's an outcast, prostitute, and Within minutes of becoming a Christian, she testifies to Jesus. 
Come meet a man who tells me all that, that all, everything about me, my innermost secrets, my sins. Come meet that man. And it says the village left because of the testimony of the woman and went to meet Jesus. But later on in chapter, John chapter 4, it says they believed in Jesus, not just because of the woman's testimony, because they had met Jesus for themselves. God used this outcast prostitute woman to bring a village to faith. And God can use us to do the same thing. So I want to encourage us, the same boldness that these men and women have is right here. Right here in our presence. Same God, present with us. I think when we think of evangelism, sometimes we think of awkward conversations forced upon someone in an uncomfortable setting. Something like this. Can you go back a picture? One more. So something like this. Going on the street corner, opening the Bible, which is awesome and is amazing. So if you do that, praise God. But for a lot of us, that's terrifying. But I think as the scriptures call us to evangelize, it should more look more like this. It looks more like sharing a meal with unbelieving friends. Good food, good drink, and just sharing what you love most, which is Jesus. Or, or something like this. Meeting a friend who you love, who God's putting a burden on your heart, and sitting in a park, and just talking about life, listening to their story. Listen, don't treat people as projects. I, just, I have to get the gospel out as quick as I can. Walk with people in suffering. Walk with people in their life. Listen to their story. Love them. And as you love them, love them enough to share Jesus. Or maybe it's like this. You sit with people at their, their last hour when they're hurting, when they're suffering, and when they're longing for hope, hope is available. I want to encourage you to consider having rhythms of life on mission. So, what I mean by that is live a life where you're intentionally engaging with unbelievers and the gospel is flowing out naturally. Let me give you some suggestions. Here are a few rhythms of life you should consider. One, what about opening your heart? Opening your heart and build real gospel-centered friendships with non-Christians. Ask yourself, where does your life intersect with non-believers? And for some of you, you may say, Sunday is the only place I intersect with believers. I'm always around non-believers. Praise God. God has you in the world to be a testimony for him. But for some of you, maybe you're like, man, I, I'm around Christians all the time, and I don't know many non-believers. You can make intentional steps to be around non-Christians. What about opening, opening your home? Open your home and share meals with non-Christians. Your neighbors, invite them in. And I know it can seem weird at first. We do that with our neighbors, and normally they turn us down, or they say yes and they don't show up. But it doesn't mean we stop asking. It doesn't mean we, we, we close our doors. I have found that one of the best gospel tools is the dinner table. Think about it. What did Jesus do? He was always inviting Zacchaeus and all these other people to dinner. Zacchaeus, get down from the tree. We're going to dinner at your house. He shared a meal with people because what food does is it breaks down barriers. If you can share a, a meal across the dinner table, people will naturally feel more comfortable with you. What about opening your hands? Open your hands and, and bless people with acts of service, with words of encouragement, and with your presence. Sometimes the greatest gift you can give people is just yourself. And I know that, that sounds um, a little cheesy, but what does it look like to just be present with people when they suffer? Or be present with people when they rejoice? And by being present with people, you're going to gain an audience to share the gospel. Be intentional to care for and serve those around you. As you seek to live out these rhythms of life on mission, you will be given ample opportunity to share Jesus in a way that naturally flows from your life. That naturally flows from your life. Michael Frost, um, an author, wrote about this. He's talking about people like us, I say people like me, who aren't natural evangelists. He says, this is why those of us who are not gifted evangelists need to foster habits in our lives that draw us into the lives of unbelievers and invite the kinds of questions that lead to evangelistic sharing. We need both gifted evangelists and ordinary believers who are habitually evangelistic. So as we think about sharing the gospel and we look at the disciples 
And I tell you that courage and boldness comes from God, who is also present with us. Where did the disciples' courage come from? To, to stand under opposition and testify to Jesus. That's not common. Their courage to share Christ came from their love relationship with him. They were able to stand over opposition because they had been with Jesus. Guess what, guys? We've been with Jesus. We are with Jesus at this very moment. Notice these four things the passage teaches us about their courage. Number one, they were, uh, the Holy Spirit's presence was in their lives. Multiple times in verse 8 and verse 31, it says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter proclaimed the gospel. And the scriptures seem to indicate as the church faces opposition, they're given special empowerment to proclaim Jesus. We see this over and over again in the stories of the martyrs. Verse 13, they were men who had been with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus. Number three, they found strength through prayer and Christian and church community. Prayer and church community. And number four, they found strength in their sovereign Lord. So these are men and women who lived with Jesus. They had abundant, growing relationships with God. And for a Christian to live out the gospel in their everyday life, they must have a deep relationship with Jesus. So guys, if you want to grow in sharing the gospel, first grow in your relationship with Jesus. Pursue him, love him, open the Bible, live in community. And as you grow as a believer, the gospel is going to come flowing out. Let me read Acts 4, verse 24 through 30. So this is after Peter and John left the Sanhedrin, this is what they did. Um, they went back to the church, and they came before the Father. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations raise and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth raise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had beforehand should happen. Now, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus. So the response to persecution was to go to the church and pray. That was their response. In the middle of suffering and persecution, they came together as a community and they prayed. And what did they pray for? Did they pray that the persecution would cease? No. It says that they prayed for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. God answered their prayers and provided, provided the boldness that they needed. We see that in Acts 5 and Acts 7. And in the midst of that persecution, the church grew. It grew in size, it grew in boldness, and it grew in maturity. So how can this be? How can Christians and the church grow under adversity? The only way they can grow under adversity is if they themselves are rooted and planted in Jesus. Psalm chapter 1 talks about that. The tree that's planted by the rivers of waters. That it will maintain the beauty of its leaves even in a drought. Because it's rooted beside the river of water. They were able to share Christ with others because they had experienced him themselves. And they continue to experience Jesus daily. How can we, how can you share your faith with the world around you? It starts by falling deeper in love with Jesus. It starts by experiencing the love of God, even when we feel unlovable. It comes out of the overflow of a relationship that you share with Christ. Your boldness to share will grow as you step deeper into Jesus and further out into the world. You step into Jesus and out into the world. Now, the point of the sermon is not to convince you to try to share your faith more. Try harder. Knock on more doors. Be more bold with your faith. Although that's, all that stuff is great. The point of this passage is to show you that these men had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus, and the result of being with Jesus is they couldn't keep their mouth closed. They couldn't keep the gospel in. They had to let the gospel go. 
as we think back to the beginning of the sermon, and we, we talked about the man of John Bunyan, and the, the hero of faith he is, he should be to all of us, and the price that he paid to share the gospel, that courage and boldness came from a deep love he had with Jesus. Let me read some words that John Bunyan wrote. He says, His love is what makes us live, love, sing, and praise forever. John Bunyan's life overflowed with joy, even in the midst of suffering, because he was with Jesus. As we close, I want to compel you to follow Bunyan's lead. Follow our friend John Bunyan and fall more deeply in love with Jesus today. This church service is a win if you leave loving Jesus more than you did when you came in. As you do, you can't help but share Jesus with others. Let me pray. Father God, you are a God who has given us the boldness and courage to share Jesus with the world around us. Father, that does not come as we try harder, as we work harder, as we guilt ourselves into these places, Father. We are able to share Jesus as we lean into you. Father, as we fall into your arms in our weakness, as we trust your spirit, Father, I pray in this moment that you will bring to the mind and hearts of everyone here lost people in our lives, our parents, our brothers and sisters, our cousins, our neighbors, our co-workers, our spouses. Father, ingrain their faces in our minds and allow us to share Jesus. Allow us to share the one that we love so deeply and so desperately. Father, I pray that you can draw us into yourself. Give us the courage to share the love that we have with you. Lord, allow the word of God to seep into our hearts and give us the strength to live this week and to be different people because of it. It's in your name I pray. Amen.